the lamb will become the lion and in perfect justice he will crush their lives like the workers in a vineyard trampled the grapes no wonder it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series in Revelation 14, titled, A Preview of Jesus' Victory. How does the omniscience of God provide a Christian with assurance of salvation? Well, in Revelation 14, The Apostle John provides a vivid preview of Jesus' final victory, describing God's holy wrath and righteous judgment against those who refuse to believe in His Son and the eternal and heavenly reward for all of those who have. As you'll discover in today's program, Revelation 14 essentially presents two roads, the wide road that leads to eternal destruction apart from our Lord, and the narrow road that leads to eternal life with Christ. Which one are you on, friend? And how can you know for sure? Let's join Tom now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. As a backdrop for our study of this text, I want us to start by remembering remembering what we have already seen in this amazing book of the incredible patience of Jesus Christ and his many gracious invitations to a rebellious world to believe in the gospel even during those seven years called the tribulation. Here's just a little list, and this is not all-encompassing, but it's a list to think about. During the fifth seal in chapter 6, believers are present in the world, those who come to faith after the rapture and who share their testimony and they are martyred for their faith. In the sixth seal, also in chapter 6, Christ makes it clear to the world and the world acknowledges that He is behind the events unfolding on the earth. And that is another implied invitation to repent before it's too late. He saves and commissions 144,000 Jewish evangelists to share the gospel with the world and sends them out across the planet on a mission to bring the gospel into the lives of the lost. Their many converts, also in chapter 7, share the gospel and they in turn are killed and we see them eventually gathering around the throne of God in heaven. The judgments that unfold during this time are catastrophic, but they are at the same time survivable by the largest portion of the earth's population. In chapter 11, he sends two witnesses whose testimonies are heard by the entire world. He allows men to see the power and hatred of Satan and evil in Antichrist and the false prophet, in the demon locusts that come out of the pit of hell. They see what evil looks like. He sends an angel in chapter 14 preaching the gospel across the heavens. He sends another angel warning that that great economic and political system run by Antichrist is about to collapse. 
He sends a third angel warning that if they refuse to repent, he will be forced to condemn them to eternal fire in the lake of fire forever. Again and again and again during really a brief period of time, seven brief years, Jesus shows his incredible patience and his incredible extension and offer of grace. Today, at the end of chapter 14, we're reminded that the time will come when it will no longer be time for his patience and his grace or his compassion, but it will be a time only of strict judgment on the world and its people. We'll be reminded in the passage that we look at that the lamb is also a lion. Just to remind you of what we've learned about chapter 14, it is an, part of an interlude in the chronological events of Revelation. Chapter 14 provides a powerful preview of the Lamb's final victory with the eternal defeat of his enemies and the eternal reward of his followers. It's a preview of what's yet to come, a kind of trailer for the rest of the tribulation. And as we've noted, this preview of Jesus' ultimate victory unfolds in five dramatic scenes. First of all, Jesus returns and gathers with his 144,000 Jewish witnesses, an event that will take place at the second coming after he has defeated his enemies. Through his angel, Jesus preaches the everlasting gospel to the world. Thirdly, through his angel, Jesus proclaims the imminent fall of Antichrist's empire. A fourth scene is through his angel, Jesus announces the impending judgment of mankind. And, and we saw last time that Christ has decreed everlasting punishment for unbelievers in verses 9 through 11 and everlasting rest for believers in verses 12 and 13. Today we come to the last dramatic scene in this preview of Jesus' coming victory. And it's this, Jesus initiates the final harvest of earth's people. Let's read it together. Revelation 14, beginning in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the, the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, just to give you an overview of these verses, as you can see, verses 14 to 16 is a preview of coming judgment in the metaphor of a grain harvest. And then verses 17 to 20 is a preview of coming judgment compared to a grape harvest. It's interesting that in the book of Joel, 
as he looks forward to the future day of the Lord, this time period we're studying, in Joel 3.13, he combines both of these pictures in one verse. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. There's the grain harvest. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. There's the grape harvest. Now, what's going on in these two metaphors of a, of a grain harvest and a grape harvest? Well, everyone agrees, there's, there's no disparity on this, that the grape harvest in verses 17 to 20 describes God's judgment on unbelievers. That's clear because if you look in verse 19, all of the grapes that are harvested are thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. So there's no question about that. But what about the grain harvest? Well, there are two options that are set forth for the grain harvest. Some would say that the grain harvest describes either in whole or in part the harvest of believers from the earth. There are compelling arguments against that view. Let me give you four of them. First of all, in this grain harvest in verses 14 to 16, John does not say that martyrs were reaped or saints were reaped or the righteous were reaped, but he says, but the earth was reaped. Secondly, the metaphor of a wheat harvest is used in different ways in Scripture. Some see the, the grain here and think, oh, well, we know what that is. That's right. John the Baptist talked about in, in Matthew 3, 7, that Jesus would gather his wheat into his barn. Or they say, remember in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. The wheat has to be believers. But that's not how grain or wheat is always used in Scripture. For example, Jeremiah 51, 33, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time it is stamped firm, yet in a little while the time of the harvest will come for her. There the grain harvest is of unbelievers, of the wicked. So don't think that it's always going to be used the same way in every context. A third argument against this being believers is the tone of this entire section. You caught it as I read it from verses 14 to 20. The tone is one of the judgment of the wicked, not the salvation or deliverance of the righteous. And I think sort of the coup de grace here is that this picture is based on Joel 3.13 in which the wicked are punished during the day of the Lord. There he combines both the grain and the grapes as a picture of the coming judgment on the wicked. So I think there's a better solution as far as what's going on in these two metaphors of a grain and a, and a grape harvest. Because between this chapter, chapter 14, and the second coming in chapter 19, two judgments will unfold. And those two judgments, I believe, are depicted in these two harvests. The grain harvest describes the next judgment to unfold. Beginning in chapter 15, verse 1, and through chapter 18, it's the judgment of the seven bowls that will be poured out on the earth. That's the grain harvest. And the grape harvest describes the coming judgment in Armageddon, and that becomes very clear at the end of this passage, and we'll see that as it unfolds. So as Jesus initiates the final harvest of earth's people, he does so, first of all, using the image of the grain harvest, and that describes his coming judgment of the seven bowls. 
This is the message of verses 14 to 16 in our text. Now, this is clearly a metaphor. No one believes that Jesus is going to use an actual sickle, nor that he's harvesting real wheat or grain. This is a metaphor, both of these are, and so we have to understand it that way. What I'm going to do in my outline is bring out the reality that the metaphor is communicating in each case. So this grain harvest begins by reminding us that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is, in fact, the divine Son of Man from Daniel 7. Look at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Now this expression, then I looked and behold, occurs consistently throughout Revelation to introduce a new and an important scene. And as John looks at this new scene, the first thing that caught his attention was a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Now that wording comes from Daniel chapter 7. Turn back there with me. We studied this together. I love this text, and you need to go, if you weren't here when we went through Daniel, you need to go listen because this is one of my favorite passages, Daniel chapter 7. But notice the imagery that's communicated here in verse 13. Daniel 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel writes, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is not only a dominion that ranges across the world, but it's forever. It's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." John has already used this very same language in Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, as he describes the the glorified Christ, he pictures him with this majestic scene. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. And... When that one returns, back in verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds. So you see those images combined. A blazing white cloud will accompany Jesus at the second coming. And he is one like a son of man. That is, he is one of us, but he's not solely one of us. He is also God. Now some have argued, back to our text, some have argued that the person in verse 14 is an angel. This one like a son of man sitting on a cloud. Some said, no, it's not Jesus, it's an angel. But, but this same terminology is used to refer to Christ in chapter 1 and in Daniel 7. In addition, the title son of man was Jesus' favorite term for himself during the incarnation. This is the glorified Christ. And notice we're told in verse 14 that he is sitting. That pictures his patiently waiting until the time comes 
And he's sitting on a cloud which pictures his majesty, his exalted glory. It brings back sort of pictures of the Shekinah glory cloud from the Old Testament. Chapter 1, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So he is the divine son of man from Daniel 7. He will be victorious over all his enemies. Notice verse 14 goes on to say, having a golden crown on his head. Now it's an interesting choice John makes here. The Greek word for crown is not the crown of a king. It's not the word diadem, which Jesus later wears in chapter 19. Instead, this Greek word is the word stephanos. It's the word used to describe the crown that was given to generals who had been victorious in battle and to athletes who had been victorious in the games. It is the victor's crown. It points to Jesus' impending victory over all of his enemies. Once he is completely victorious, he will wear, as he does in chapter 19, a diadem, a crown of royalty. He will be victorious over all his enemies. And in anticipation of that, he's already wearing the crown of the victor. And he is the one who has the exclusive right to judge. Look again at verse 14. He has a sharp sickle in his hand. The Greek word for sickle describes a a long curved iron blade that has been carefully sharpened and then attached to a wooden handle. Sometimes it was a short wooden handle so that it could be used with with one hand. Other times the blade was attached to a a long handle swung with both hands in a, a sweeping cutting action through the grain. And this tool we're told is sharp which stresses the severity and the certainty of what it will accomplish. The fact that our Lord holds this sharp sickle in his hand implies the reality that we're told in the Gospels that he alone has the the ultimate right to judge. Only he has the responsibility to gather the harvest at the end of the age. He may use his angels to accomplish some of it, but he is the one who has the authority John chapter 5, verse 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 26, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He will execute it in mass in the tribulation. He will execute it individually at the great white throne of judgment. Jesus The lion, who is the lamb, will be the judge of every single human being. Acts 10.42, Peter says to Cornelius, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that of Jesus. This is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17.31 to the philosophers there on Mars Hill, Paul says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. How? Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He is the one who has the right to judge. He is the Lord of the harvest. Secondly, we learn in verse 15 
about this grain harvest that the end is the time of this harvest. Verse 15 says, and another angel came out of the temple. Another angel refers back to verse nine where there's an angel mentioned. This is the fourth angel in a series of six that appear in this chapter. You remember the first three angels either announce the eternal gospel or, or coming judgment. This fourth angel announces that it's now time. It's time for God to execute that judgment that's been announced. Notice verse 15 says this angel came out of the temple, that is out of the heavenly dwelling place of God, out of the throne room of God, or out of the presence of God in heaven. Verse 15 says, and he came out crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. This angel is pictured bringing an announcement from the Father to the Son. And he proclaims it loudly with a sense of urgency and with a sense of the importance of this message. And this is what he says. This is the message the angel has received from God and is merely relaying to Christ. Put in your sickle and reap. Put in your sickle and reap. We already saw in Joel 3, this image of harvesting is an image that's often divine judgment. Now, why does the angel say it's time for Christ to reap? Well, he goes on to explain, verse 15, 4, because the hour to reap has come. Why is it the hour? By the way, you remember, if you remember John's gospel, again and again, he uses that expression in the mouth of Jesus my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, and then eventually my hour has come. There he's talking about the cross. Here, it's not the cross, it's the hour of judgment. The hour of his judgment has come. Why? Verse 15 goes on to say, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Notice again, this is the harvest, not of the righteous, but of the earth. This is, this is a judgment of rebellious humanity. And here's the reason it's the hour to reap, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Literally, the Greek text says, is dry, which is exactly what you would expect with harvesting grain, right? When the the stalks of grain have turned from green to golden brown, it's time to harvest them. They're dry, it's time. So an angel comes from the presence of God with a message from the Father for the Son of Man saying... It's time. Jesus has been waiting, waiting patiently, and now it's time. God's patience has reached its end. The time for grace is done. The time for justice has arrived. It's time for the seven final bowls of divine judgment to be poured out on the earth, and that's what begins, really, the announcement of those in chapter 15 and the actual pouring out of them then in chapter 16, 17, and 18. So this is an announcement. This grain harvest is a reminder, it's coming. It's coming. And that time will come near the end of the tribulation, as we'll see as the bold judgments unfold. As we look at this grain harvest, thirdly, we learn that the Lord Jesus will initiate and complete the harvest in verse 16. Then he who sat on the cloud swung, literally cast or threw his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
this chilling description of Jesus' future judgment of the earth is expressed in the Greek language as if it had already happened. It's so certain that John uses language as if it was already passed. Again, this metaphor of a grain harvest describes the unleashing of Jesus' judgment on the earth with the the pouring out of the seven bowls of judgment in chapters 15 to 18. This is the beginning of the end. God's patience is done. It's time for justice. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed, concluding his series with part eight of A Preview of Jesus' Victory. Tom will begin another series on our next program. Do join us then. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, I think when we read passages like Revelation 14, the times and events that are described there can seem unreal, even ephemeral. But the reality is that eternity is forever. The judgment of God is coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed to men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Heaven and hell are real. They're real places. And God has created all of us in such a way that when we leave this earth, we will immediately be alive even either in heaven or in hell, and we'll be there forever. Whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell depends entirely on whether you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ and his gospel. Revelation 14 demands that you believe in him, and that is my prayer for you, friend, today. Thanks, Tom. Remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music